0: Welcome to TES Podagogy. My guest for this episode is Tamsin Ford, Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Exeter. Today we are discussing the mental health of young people and a school's role within that. Hello Tamsin. Hello. So we ran a big feature just before Christmas about the uh, latest NHS survey, which is the, I, get, I, I believe the third iteration of a, of a very... I mean, it's the most comprehensive survey done on adolescent mental health in, in the country, is that right?
1: Absolutely, and probably the biggest single-phase survey done um, in the world. So by single-phase, I mean every single child had a multi-informant standardised diagnosis. Now, to unpick that very technical language, that meant the parents of all children aged 2 to 16, and older than that if the young person agreed, were interviewed face-to-face. Eleven-year-olds up to the oldest young people who were 19 were interviewed face-to-face and provided the young person and the family agreed, a questionnaire was mailed to a teacher of their choice and the data from all those three informants was examined by experienced clinicians to assign diagnoses as close as we could get to what would happen in a clinic. So the question we were answering for the government who funded this was how many young people out there have a serious impairing mental health condition.
0: And that means one that goes beyond sort of low level anxiety or or stress, something to clarify where the difference lies, that we're not talking about a child being stressed because of an exam, but then gets over that this is this is a diagnosable mental health issue yes
1: it 's you know the 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 boundaries are always a little bit fuzzy as they are for quite a lot of medical conditions, for example, asthma, the boundary between being a bit wheezy when you run in the cold and having frank asthma is a bit movable um, as it is for sort of anxiety and depression, but yes, there had to be significant distress and there had to be impairment, and we were using. International Classification of Diseases, ICD-10, to make sure that we were picking out those who had clinically relevant problems. This was not about mild conditions. We also had a very well-known questionnaire called the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire that gives you a kind of broad estimate of mental health from functioning, thriving, um, to having severe problems as well. So we've got that more nuanced um, dimensional measure as well as the diagnosis or no diagnosis.
0: And those sort of uh, sort of low level uh, mental health challenges should we call them, uh, is there any evidence that they lead to the more severe problems is, is, it, is it normal to have some low level stress, anxiety
1: All of us will go through periods in our life when we are challenged by things and that will impact often both on mental and physical health, it's, it's not as separate as we think. And um, About one in four of us at some point will have a mental health condition. Um, So it's not that different from sort of one in three um, expected to get cancer during a lifetime. You know, Mm -hmm. these are common, significant um, health problems. I think there are certain vulnerabilities, uh, certain tendencies to be a bit more anxious. And if you are made that way and then have, you know, a challenging social Um, situation with not much support and then maybe a couple of adverse life events, yes you probably are more likely to have a mental health condition than someone who's not prone to be a worrier or prone to go over and over things in their minds um, or prone to be very irritable Um, but that's a bit like hair colour and eye colour, you're made the way you're made and you you just have to do the best with the cards that your genes and your environment deals you.
0: And so when we're when people have been, you know, before this study came out, there was, there was a lot of press and a lot of anecdotal evidence and some survey evidence saying, you know, we we're at an epidemic level of mental health challenges. Do you think that their definition of mental health was what you were looking at in terms of you know, diagnosable problems or, or conditions? Or do you think their definition of mental health or the sort of common definition in people's minds does include that low level anxiety, that, that, that stress that might be more common?
1: I think there's a mixture of all that going on. So I think, um, thinking about the other studies that suggested very high rates, we're getting quite a strong signal from the Adult Mental Health Survey, from the Millennium Cohort Study, and from the recent NHS Digital Survey, that um, older teenagers, particularly girls, are a high-risk group. Um, Now, the strength of the three surveys from NHS Digital are that they use the same methods, the same measures, the same team as close as they possibly could. But the first survey only studied five to to 15 year olds. So we can only look at the trends in the five to 15 year olds. And what that shows is a bit of an increase, but not much. It's a matter of a couple of percent. Mm. And the increase is almost entirely explained by um, more teenagers having emotional problems, so that's significant anxiety and depression. However, when you look at the older age range that was included in 2017 for the first time, which went from 16 to 19, they have very, very high rates, particularly the girls where um, over a fifth have an emotional disorder, and half of those are self-harming. So I think that's one thing. I think it's older teenagers who weren't in these original um, surveys seem to be having a rougher time. And if you think of a group that might be vulnerable to many of the pressures that are going on, young women is kind of where all the evidence points.
0: So these studies, uh, the NHS studies, uh, we've had three of them, is that correct? So 1999, 2004 and 2018. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the anecdotal evidence in the period between 2004 and 2018 would expect a much bigger rise in mental health incidences than compared to say 1999 to 2004 but that's that the data doesn't bear that out does it?
1: No it doesn't and I think there are several things going on now um what is without doubt is the referrals to child and adolescent mental health services have skyrocketed rock, rocketed during that time they've increased by Um, In some areas, close to 100%. And lots more young people are presenting with self-harm to um, accident and emergency. So we're seeing an increased demand for services, but that's not necessarily driven because more people are struggling in the community. And the um, recent survey data done by the same team using the same measures um, as the previous two just doesn't bear that out but we were restricted in only looking at youngsters aged between five and 15 Mm. because that was what was measured in the first one Um, and there are some hints from the adult mental health surveys which go from age 16 that young women aged age 16 to 24 are particularly suffering high rates of emotional disorder so anxiety and depression and indeed that's what we've just found in our Survey so amongst um, 17, 18, 19 year old young women, about a fifth, uh, about a fifth, a little bit more than a fifth have an emotional disorder, and about half of those young women are self harming. Um, Now, another interesting piece of work I was involved with looked at large panel surveys that were conducted year-on-year with different samples of either parents or young people using the same kind of questionnaire measures, so um, the Strengths and Difficulties questionnaire. And these were collected in England, in Wales and Scotland, so huge numbers of people, tens of thousands, were filling these in as as part of these surveys. And over a 20-year period with colleagues at UCL... We couldn't detect a a clear signal that the problems on the, the questionnaires, the scores on the questionnaires were drifting up. Where they were, it's interesting, it was around emotional difficulties, but it wasn't consistent. What was consistent over time is more parents and young people saying, yeah, I think I might have a mental health problem. So what I think we're seeing, and it's a good thing if we can get people into effective treatment, Mm. is more people being willing to come forward and say, I've got a problem, which would explain the massive increase in presentations and referrals to CAMs. I think the other thing that's feeding into that is in the era of austerity, other services that were doing mental health work are pulling back. So we have a perfect storm of more people... Being willing to say I need some help, and less help available to give them.
0: So we shouldn't interpret that as uh, an overdiagnosis problem where people are getting referred to CAMs when it's turning out there's nothing wrong with them. It's more a no. uh, early prevention. No, I'm on the road to having a serious mental health problem or challenge, but I'm getting the intervention that's stopping me getting there. And so it's a more of a willingness, if you like, to, yeah, more to willingness
1: to come forward. And actually, from these national surveys only about a quarter of those who who have a clinically significant mental health condition get to cams mm. over a 3 year period and in fact teachers are consistently coming through as our frontline mental health service which um i'm sure many of many of them do not feel trained and supported mm. in in that role but that that's where parents and young people go because they assume that teachers will know about child development and know about mental health and know what to do
0: and I guess as a, as a teacher, I mean, just, just the last sort of five minutes of discussion, we un- you know getting to grips with that complexity is almost impossible to do alongside a teaching job.
1: Yeah. And it's not the role of a teacher. However, I do think there is simple training that we could give teachers during their initial training and maybe as um, continuing professional development about where to get good information mm. um, and simple things that schools could do that would support mental health.
0: And do you see in the data from from the study we, we featured in the magazine just before Christmas, you know, the perception I guess is that secondary teachers are that are going to see this more that mental health issues arise in the teenage years because of what's happening to teenagers. But does that actually bear out? Are, you know, are primary school teachers just as important for spotting mental health?
1: Um, Absolutely. Factors? And amongst, um, if if you take. Exclusion from school, um, which is very strongly linked um, to mental health. So um, in both directions, in fact, Um, from the um, 2004 survey looking forwards to 2007, not only were children who had a psychiatric disorder more likely to be excluded subsequently, but it worked the other way around. Even if you took the children out who had a psychiatric disorder at baseline, so you start with everybody doing reasonably well, Mm If you look forward um, to 2007, those who'd been excluded were more likely to have poor mental health, adjusting for a whole background of, you know, socioeconomic status, family function, parental mental health, a whole load of other factors that might be feeding into that picture. And in fact, in the Outback cohort, this is a group of um, people who are now in their 30s they have been followed since the early 90s who lived in what was called Avon, so it stands for the Avon Longitudinal Study of Pregnancy and Childhood Um, and so they have got a wealth of data on these um, children and their families and their function at school the children who go on to be excluded from school um, particularly the boys, there weren't very many girls, but um, the boys are coming into school with poor mental health so we have a lot of time to clock them and absolutely. Um, although mental health conditions get more common um, in the teenage years, we found um, that one in eighteen two to four year olds had um, difficulties that were significant enough to count as a mental health condition.
0: I mean, I guess that's interesting that those children are able to attend the primary school and and to, to be relatively successful and avoid exclusion. In those primary years, but they hit the secondary years and find that this, the type of schooling perhaps is incompatible with that mental health challenge that they have. Do we know if 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 these children are better suited to a primary environment? Is it is it more supportive, or is it that um, these children do need specialist intervention, but maybe an SEMH uh, specialist sort of school? Where where best? I mean, it's hard, isn't it, because every child is different, but. In general, I mean, the argument has been that when children present with these problems that are disruptive or, or that are difficult to, to to support in a secondary environment, that, that, that what's best for them is a specialist provision. Is that strictly right?
1: I think there's lots that mainstream could do mm. um, that would really help. So one of the things that predicts the um, persistence of behaviour problems over time in the community is um, reading and learning difficulty. Okay. So prompt effective support for um, academic difficulties within school. You know, school is young people's job. Yeah. And, you know, I think our schools are absolutely fabulous for the majority of children. But if you have some difficulties like a neurodevelopmental problem, so, you know, children with ADHD, if you have a triad of not being able to sit still, not being able to inhibit behaviour... you know, so you call out, you respond you you're irritable with people, you don't do what you're told, you're highly impulsive the the ordinary kind of you can have a reward at the end of the week just it's it doesn't work with these children yeah. because of the way their brains are made um, you you couldn't really get a set of difficulties that would make school a harder place to be, mm. and yet. When you're an adult, you choose your environment to match your strengths as far as you can, but we make everybody go to school. Um, and the same for children with autism spectrum who really struggle with changing from one activity to another. Um, you can't think of, really, a more social environment than a secondary school. Yeah. And yet, for these children, social interactions are really difficult and they often get horribly bullied, um, so you know there's a huge amount that mainstream schools could do and the prompt support for children who have special educational needs is is one of them and I think the other thing is dealing with bullying Mm. so bullying is probably our most tractable public mental health problem it casts a shadow over um, mental health in children at the time it casts a shadow over the victim's mental health later on and Children who learn to relate to people by bullying and aggression grow up to be adults who relate to people by bullying and aggressi- aggression. Mm. Um, so the damage is perpetuated. And we have a lot of evidence-based programs, courses, ways of running schools. We're just really lousy at implementing them.
0: So are these children who, who struggle, you mentioned some of these children come in with to, to the school system with a mental health issue already Mm -hmm. are there children who do not come in with these mental health issues but are are you know as you say bullying perhaps creates a mental health issue in those children so are we not only not dealing with the children who have existing problems but is the school environment i'm not claiming the schools cause it but is the school environment sometimes resulting in mental health problems
1: i think we shouldn't underestimate the influence of the school which can both be highly positive yeah. but also for some children highly negative and you know for people go into teaching because they usually like being around children and they want to draw the best out in people that's what edu- education means isn't it drawing yeah. out um, you know so they want to fill a vessel um, and so I imagine for teachers it's very painful to think that the structures that they're in might not be Great for children's mental health. I would argue also for teachers' mental health. So I've I've just finished a large trial of a teacher classroom management course, and one of our outcomes was teacher mental health. Um, Sadly, we didn't demonstrate an improvement in it. Um, In our feasibility work, we did um, make teachers feel that they could do their jobs better, Um, but we were measuring teachers' mental health all the way through. So we found really high rates of depression and stress amongst the teachers, shockingly high rate, and, and that's the second um, trial to do that. So the WISE trial, led by Judy Kidger in Bristol, um, which is secondary. My trial was in, in primary schools. Also found, not quite in the clinical range, but definitely higher than the general population. So teachers as a group have high levels of occupational stress. The thing that was shocking in the STARS trial was that um, 10% of those teachers scored above the cut point for depression at all four time points over 30 months. And these were people who were in the classroom sending back questionnaires. They're not the people who were off sick. And obviously, if your mental state's not great, teaching is very stressful, very demanding. You're going to be more irritable. you're going to find it harder you can see how you get into a vicious circle yeah, yeah. so i don't think our schools are some of our schools are great for teachers mental health too i think we need to look after our teaching workforce much better than we do
0: And you mentioned that if you do struggle with the school environment as a, as a child as an adult you get to sort of pick your environment and find where you feel comfortable does that lead on then that we do need better choice of schools as 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 a part po- of population i mean at the moment you know there's an effort to standardize in in you know through Ofsted or through D- the DfE about what a school should look like what lessons should look like even what teaching should look like but if those environments aren't going to work for everyone how do we you know is choice a, a better option i mean if you had a choice of three different types of school would you would you expect to see those children fitting in a bit better
1: i think inevitably how much you try and standard things standardize things people um Are different, so communities will always be different. So that's one of the reasons when you are analysing data from schools, you have to deal with the clustering because children within a school or within a class within a school will be more similar than children at a different school. So, you know, um, standardising is not ultimately going to be, you will never end up with everything completely the same. Mm. That said, I think it's about the fit. But you know, rather than good schools and bad schools or the right method or the wrong method I think it's about the fit mm. between that child and that school um, and I think that's something that we can do something about and I think prompt support for children who are struggling in whichever way actually would cost some investment now but the money that might be saved later on is huge so mm. depression um in ten to twenty years' time will be the single most burdensome health problem wow um, and we're kind of have you know we're kind of heading towards that already very rapidly in young women yeah. um, I think some smart preventative work in schools um, might help make our our population of, of tomorrow's adults um, a bit more resilient
0: so part of that you mentioned before was some basic ITT training for for teachers on mental health, sort of first aid. Um, do you buy into the the narrative that we need a mental health professional in every every school or a mental health trained expert in every school? I mean, is that feasible? Is that is that necessary, or is that basic training for every teacher probably a more scalable option?
1: I think maybe I'm greedy, but I don't think it's either or. Okay. I think, um, but you know, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist, so I, you know, I think mental health is integral to being able to function well and there are increasing number of studies linking good mental health to better outcome, academic outcomes, which, you know, health might not be school's core option or core business, but academic outcomes or, you know, occupational outcomes mm-hmm. sure is. Um, so I think it's an you know, there's no choice for schools. They need to engage with this. I think we need to equip tomorrow's teachers to find out about things um, from reliable sources and to know where to go. I don't think we need to be turning teachers into counsellors. Teaching already is a demanding enough job, but what they need is structures within the schools and a single individual who is, you know, has a role looking out for mental health and plugging people into the support available. is a very good option I'm not sure that having moving all the, the mental health services into the schools is the best option for everybody there will be some children and families who really won't want um their, their health care to be within school for, for others it will be convenient so again I think you know that there needs to be a little bit of flexibility and working with the child and the family and the school that you have in front of you and i would hesitate to impose a model from the top down. I think it's about local solutions, but making sure that children, families, teachers and schools get the support that they need. Um, and we've massively under-invested in mental health services, and that's why we have a situation where a quarter of all referrals are rejected, um, yet yeah, only a quarter of those with an impairing mental health condition get to services and you know to give an indication of how persistent these problems are we put the data from the 99 and the 2004 survey together and that gives you about a thousand children with a mental health condition and that's you know the biggest sample in the world and we then followed them forwards for three years so they were resurveyed three years later half of those who met diagnostic criteria in the baseline survey met it again three years later these are not transient problems and if you think about maybe not functioning at your best between the ages of 13 and 16 just think what that does to your life Mm -hmm. chances or your educational attainment you know these are really crucial years and we know that most of those um who have adult mental health problems have their first problems before the age of um Adulthood. So from a, a cohort study in New Zealand in Dunedin, half of those who had problems in their mid-20s had had their first problem before the age of 15. It was 75% by the age of 18. And amongst those who needed specialist mental health services, it was almost all of them. Wow. So, you know, we are really missing a trick. We, the, there is a good news story here. We have effective treatments. We just don't have enough people trained to, to deliver them. So we need to get a bit smart about how we, you know, how we match the people who are most likely to benefit, and we need to think about ways to broaden that access. And having one or two people in schools who are trained up might be a way to do that.
0: Sort of, if, if everyone... It sounds to me like there's, there's, there's sort of a gap between initial triage and, and and treatment for the most severe cases and it seems like we need more tiered a tiered approach i yeah. guess of triage where there are different levels of training at each stage of that obviously getting more and more yeah. trained to, to to the point where they hit a psychiatrist at, at the end but that everyone in that knows their role as well yeah. so teachers aren't trying to do too much or that there's not too much to be expected mm-hmm. of them on that first line i guess yeah.
1: And, you know, one of the things that teachers could do is um, be aware of where there is good self-help available. And if there were good links between education and mental health services, one of the roles of the mental health services could be to provide resources. You know, there will be some people with milder problems who pointed at the right self-help material will sort it out for themselves. And what we don't want to do is undermine people's ability... To cope, because actually, facing and dealing with a little bit of challenge, is what helps you deal with challenge next time. It, you know, we don't want to make sure that nobody ever has a life event. Well, we wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Um, and we do want to skill people up to be able to cope um, with adversity. So, you know, the, the, some P.S.H.E. that focused on looking after your mental health, as we do lots about avoiding drugs. Um, how to manage relationships, um, ways of coping with stress, working out what stresses you out. You know, there are simple self-help techniques that wouldn't be difficult to teach teenagers. And I think actually you could start in primary and you just, as you do with lots of things, you layer on the complexity year on year.
0: And so you, you talked earlier as well about the school environment and how certain school environments may contribute to mental health challenges... Um using you, you, you know the star study looked a lot into behavior um, management systems, and you know there is a huge debate at the moment about how we how we manage behavior in schools and what is the best methodology Is there any correlation between how a school manages behavior and how uh, how prevalent a mental health problem might be in a school environment
1: i 'm not sure anyone studied that with the very first survey. Robert Goodman and I managed to um, persuade Ofsted to link the data. It was one of um, the very first examples of that. Now, because the sample was selected via the child benefit register, we had loads of schools that weren't in the study at all because none of their pupils were selected. I think we had between one and 11 children per school, not even per year group. But what we did show was Um, a very strong correlation between the Ofsted ratings and some local government returns um, and the level of mental health problems whether you looked at disorder or you looked at the um, scores on the strengths and difficulties questionnaire and the things that were important were the proportion of children with recognised special educational needs the proportion with unauthorised absence, the proportion on free school meals, um, and there's one other that's gone out of my head. It will come to me. If people are interested, I can make the paper available. Mm. But in other words, there are some school characteristics that seem to be feeding into mental health. Now, some of it will be the catchment area of the school. So like all health problems, mental health is more common amongst people living in deprived circumstances. Um, and there are certain groups who are very vulnerable by nature of their circumstances. So children looked after. Um, if you count thriving as being in the normal range on every subscale of the strengths and difficulties questionnaire, it's one in ten. Okay. And about half of them met diagnostic criteria when we did a separate survey of children who were looked after as opposed to one in ten at the time
0: it's huge, yeah.
1: yeah so that's a particular vulnerable group and there'll be other groups who are you know refugees are another um, particularly vulnerable group um, I mean and schools if, might
0: know that anecdotally yeah, absolutely. In, in a way but it'd be nice I guess for a school to know if at a criteria list like that oh well we hit all of those criteria yeah. maybe this is where a lot of our investment can go, and maybe if a school hits none of those criteria, they might think, "Well, actually, not to be complacent, but perhaps we need to look at how we can help mm. schools that are in that situation." I mean, what, what, well, how can we help out? Because we haven't got that problem as as, as much. How can we collaborate mm. with a school that does perhaps to try and meet some of these early interventions that you've been talking about?
1: Absolutely, and I think you know the the context of the school will affect the kind of problems they see. So. Uh, a a single gender school a girls secondary school for example um, would have a much higher prevalence of of eating disorders by the virtue of the fact that anorexia and bulimia is much commoner in young women the peak onset is in the mid teens Mm. and it's about 9 to 10 to 1 in girls Um, so although overall boys and girls didn't have a different disorder, a different prevalence of disorder, you get a swing in the early years from mostly boys, yeah. because it's mostly neurodevelopmental disorders and behaviour problems, which are more common in boys, to sort of roughly even in the um, the sort of 11 to 16-year-olds. But you're seeing the increase of emotional disorders at that stage. And then you get the swing over to young women, which is then follows the rest of the um, life course, with more eating disorders and um, anxiety and
0: depression. Do you think then that, I mean, information like that is really important for schools to understand about when the most prevalence are, what sort of problems to look for? Obviously, that that shouldn't be dictatorial in the sense that, oh, we won't bother looking at girls in the early years because mm-hmm. we're concentrating on the boys. But just to have that, that nudge in certain directions is useful. Is, is then this sort of, I mean, some people have called it hysteria, but you know this perception that, an epidemic of mental health problems that's the reason we've been talking about it in education so much because there's been so much chat about there being an epidemic so in that sense it's been useful that there's been that slight hyperbole about the incidences do you think there's a negative side though as well to to saying you know this perception that it's at epidemic levels that you know our mental health of young people is out of control is there is there a downside to that
1: well i don't think the data quite matches it so i do think we have an increase Mm. And I do think it's very serious and I I am grateful to the attention that mental health is getting because um, mental health services are Cinderella services and children's mental health services are the Cinderella service of the Cinderella service. So we desperately, desperately need the funding because we have effective treatments, we can get people functioning better. And schools need to be concerned because if your mental health is poor, whether it's a neurodevelopmental problem, whether it's a behavioural problem, or whether it's an emotional problem, it knocks your academic attainment, which is school's core business and not not what schools need. That said, I don't think our schools need to be clinics and I don't think our teachers need to be therapists, but there are some really good, high-quality um, sources of, of really high-quality information like MindEd where, you know, teachers can go and skill themselves up if if they want to. Um, and maybe having someone who has done some kind of credentialing or, you know, has the label of, of designated mental health lead who knows about those and can find source the information, digest it themselves, get it out to the people who know... I think are, schools can be a huge force for good and some fairly small tweaks to the way they're run could make big difference for the pupils who attend them.
0: Yeah. And I think the, the final question, I think, is... I mean, in, this is a week when, it, once again, social media's been blamed for um, causing mental health problems in young, young people, or at least in some of the more measured uh, press coverage, uh, fueling mental health problems in children. Uh, and there are many, many schools who buy into that narrative, who will say that social media is driving young people to suicide, driving them to self-harm. Does the data play, does the data support that narrative as well?
1: No, it absolutely does not at the, moment, at the current point in time. We have a huge lack of longitudinal data I mean, obviously, you can't do an experiment where you randomise some people to be cyberbullied and see what happens. Um, But actually, nearly all the data we've got is cross-sectional. So both the mental health and the internet use or the screen time or whatever is gathered at the same time. So the national survey in 2017 showed that children who had a mental health condition were spending much more time online. They perceived the impact to be more negative than those without a disorder. But it's gathered at the same time, so we don't know which is chicken and which is egg. Mm. And I think most of the data we have is similar. Then you need to unpack what social media or screen time is actually measuring. There's a big difference from spending hours watching something like Numberphile, which is advanced maths, as it is to kind of posting selfies on Instagram. There are some really, really unpleasant um, websites that promote anorexia and self-harm as a way of coping, but equally there is some really good self-help stuff out there, so it's not only how much time, it's what you're using, how you're using it. Now, there is evidence out with the social media debate that actually self-harm clusters in schools. It's sometimes social, so there is a degree of of influence. So I think we shouldn't downplay the risk of of um sites that promote um very unhealthy ways of coping. And I think we need to be smart. Um, teenagers know when they're being sold a line. They know when you're talking rubbish. So to say, oh, you mustn't do it, or it's really bad for you. They 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 will just ignore it. It's a bit like the debate around drugs and sex. It's about having a conversation about the risks and the benefits, as far as we know them. Being honest about what we don't know, and then thinking about ways to keep yourself safe.
0: Mm. And are they, I mean, I guess in the reporting of it, it's 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 like anything. The, the 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 stories that get told tend to be, you know, the the almost, you know, you 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 say this child has a mental health issue, she found some self-harm websites and she became a self-harmer. What you don't hear about is the people who have been on Instagram, say the Instagram was mm. the promoter of the self-harm website, how many children are on Instagram not following that path?
1: Exactly. Or, exactly. Uh, for
0: example, like how many kids play Fortnite and don't get a mental health issue mm. as a result of it? And, you know, do, it does there need to be a bit more nuance in that debate to say, you know, what, you know, okay let's say fortnite is the biggest disruptor and you know, it's the thing teachers hate most actually do we actually know how disruptive that is in reality and how disruptive it's likely to be in terms of percentage of number i don't of kids? think we
1: do and you know there are we can't get about away from the fact that um, social media technology plays an increasing role in in our lives and it will in our children's lives so in a way if they're not learning how to use it they're going to be at a disadvantage um, I think we need good longitudinal data and we need to be sensible and honest with our young people about risks and benefits and how we keep them safe.
0: I guess an additional final question then is that lots of parents and teachers take the idea that taking away a phone or taking away the internet is a preventative measure. It sounds like from what you were saying about the, you know, the nature of teenagers is that you're not you're not solving a problem by doing that
1: I don't think you are I think you know I can imagine where you know I've used access to the phone as um, a sanction in my house before now Um, and I'm aware of some parents who turn the internet the internet router off yeah Um, at night when there have been problems with their young person playing games in the middle of the night you know, I think there will always be it's part of parenting and it's part of um, being a young person is that kind of negotiation that goes on which is partly behavioural and partly discussion Um, but I think a blanket ban is not going to help young people, it's like dealing with roads, dealing with alcohol dealing with drugs you need to educate people and help them to make informed decisions about keeping themselves as safe as possible.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Sandy. Thank you.
1: L'Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr. Thank mm-hmm. you.